Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center. And I'm Rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together we try to look for the balance of what it means to be human in today's world. Hey, everybody. This is Jonathan with Living in the Matrix. Uh, Rich is not here today. This is an experiment for myself to put part of my story out there and share what I think is one of life's most important lessons of something that everyone has to learn. And the question everyone faces at some point in their life is, how do you overcome hard things? And to do that, I want to share a couple stories that uh, where I encountered almost insurmountable obstacles and share just to put it out there. Part of this is an experiment because I'm on my own today. And I don't have a guest. Uh, Rich is not here. And I thought I'd do something that put me out of my comfort zone, which is doing this on uh, by myself today. And I thought, why not tackle a subject that is really central to what we are all experiencing? And overcoming obstacles is something that everyone experiences in their life. And this is how I was able to do it. Because I think that's a central point of what it means to be human is this idea of we encounter something and we are having to overcome the obstacle that's in front of it in front of us so if you've seen the movie um run fat boy run with simon Pegg, it's one of the best stories that works through the idea of overcoming to give you a little bit of an idea of the story run fat boy run is the story of dennis who is a man who has learned how to run away from his problems and I, for the most part of my life, I have resonated with that. I tended to run from my problems as opposed to face them. And a big part of my growth as a human being has been learning to say, no, I got this. I can do this. And it's taken me a really long time to get there. So at the beginning of the movie, he, he literally runs. The movie starts with him abandoning his bride at the altar. He runs away because he's afraid to actually commit to something and get married. And then five years later, he discovers that she's seeing another man and wants to win her back. So he's got a reason to tackle his issues, but he really hasn't changed much as a person. So he gets this wild idea to run a marathon to prove that he can finish something hard. And it's kind of an interesting idea as he processes it. And then the culmination of the movie is the final race of the marathon. It's about the last half of the movie. And at the beginning of the race, he gets into an altercation with Wit, who's his former girlfriend's boyfriend. And Wit trips Dennis, leaving him with a badly turned ankle right at the start of the race. And Dennis basically at that point has to make a decision, okay, this isn't just a 26 mile race. This is a 26 mile race with basically no ankle. And they put a brace on him. The medical puts a brace on him, but he makes the decision to continue the race, even though he probably can't finish. And I know we've all felt that idea of in the face of insurmountable obstacles, do I continue? Because that's largely part of the conversation that happens when you hit a wall. Do I continue this process or do I give up? Because sometimes giving up is just as viable as a solution. So 
As he continues to run the race, the news picks up on Dennis and the crowd follows him as, he's prog- as he progresses. A couple of his friends join the crowd and they're all cheering him on and walking behind him as he literally limps through the race. And the pivotal scene is him hitting the proverbial wall, which is this idea in marathon running that around 15 to 20 miles, you literally hit a mental state where you can no longer continue. And he hits the wall. He's 15 miles in. It's already dark. Most of the racers have gone home. And the crowd, which includes the news crew, stops to watch Dennis and what he'll do. And at first, there you don't see any obstacle. But for Dennis, it's this 20-foot high brick wall that's literally hundreds of feet wide. He can't go around it. He's got to go through it. It presents an obstacle. The crowd obviously can't see it, but it's in his mind. And as he contemplates what to do, a brick opens up just above his head, forcing him and someone on the other side pulls the brick through, giving him a hole. And he has to step onto his heels, hurting his ankle. And he sees himself through the hole. And on the other side of the wall, it's him saying, you can do it. Keep going. Keep making it through. And I think this is a really pivotal idea that is paramount to every obstacle we will ever encounter. And that is continuing has to come from inside. As we talk about these stories, that is the central theme for my entire life. It always comes down to making a decision for myself and being the one to instill the story. And as he sees himself, at first he tries to, so finally he gets the courage to say, okay, I'm gonna do this. And he takes a step back, a couple feet, and he hits the brick wall thinking it's gonna break through, but he doesn't have enough energy, he doesn't have enough motivation, he doesn't have what it takes to break through yet. And all these images of him running from his bride, quitting on things he's done, all the voices are reminding him that he couldn't make it. Now he's got to break through those because realistically, obstacles exist first in our minds. And that's one of the hardest parts to get over is really we're doing the work inside, not just outside. All the crowd is there cheering him, but he's fighting against himself. And I think that's central to all obstacles that we'll ever face is they are largely created by us as self-limiting factors that we have to get over. That's at least what I experienced. But this time he chose to finally take a couple of steps back and he runs into the wall as hard as he can. And this time he breaks through. Now, visually, he's not breaking through a wall. He opens his minds and his uh, eyes and he realizes I can continue and he starts to go again. And the movie is important because it explores this idea of overcoming obstacles in a really simple and profound way. It happens inside. But when I saw it, it hit me deeply. Um, Overcoming our own internal struggles is one of the most important actions we can take as human beings to discover life. If we never learn to overcome our own limiting beliefs, we're always going to be living in this very safe little world that's very, very small. And um, so today I want to share three stories where I didn't know if I could continue. I hit my proverbial wall 
in these three events. And each time I was almost propelled or compelled by something to say internally to say, I want to survive. And at a, at a rudimentary biological level, it's called autopoiesis. It's the drive to continue. Um, and something inside of me just wouldn't let go and give up as much as it hurt. So the heart, these are the harder stories of my life. And the first one is my parents getting divorced. When I was nine years old, I um, had a very interesting event happen where my mom, who took us to church every Sunday, took us to church without my sister and dropped me off, which was very strange. And then she came back when church was over and picked me up and proceeded to tell me that I was, uh, my parents were getting a divorce. And I remember that moment as clear as day. I can still feel the experience. I can still see the brown hills in the background as I was sitting in the back seat of her car. It was just my mom and I. And I really remember feeling absolute shattering of my world. It was the first major event where stability was completely broken. And I don't remember anything for quite a while. I have a few moments of... Um, going and visiting my dad in his new apartment. He lived with some gentlemen in uh, about 30 minutes away that he worked with at IBM. But my life began to go into a complete tailspin. My world was shattered. My hero was my dad. And I'll tell you a quick story of my dad. The best memory I have of my dad is when I was five years old and he would come home from work every day and it, he would come in the front door because we had a carport. So he'd walk around to the front and whoever got to him first, when they heard the door open, got to jump in his arms first and he would give us the juicy fruit gum that he was chewing on. And we, if you kissed him, he would, he would, he would give you his juicy fruit. And it was just our little exchange. And I remember I'm losing my hero. My hero is gone. Now he lives 30 minutes away. This is my dad. And I didn't know how to honestly handle it. And I went into a spin uh, and my primary coping mechanisms were stealing and lying. I started stealing. One time I went to camp and um, I was so frustrated because I wanted my parents to give me money and they gave me instead opportunities to earn money and I didn't earn it. So the day camp came, I actually stole 20 bucks from my dad, my stepdad in the bathroom and I went to camp and on the way to camp, they, they at the McDonald's on the way there, they called me and said, you have a call from your mom. And my mom said, we know you stole the money. Don't spend it. And so I was completely busted, but instead of listening to the experience and saying, okay, let's learn from this. I ended up stealing a wallet from a kid at camp in my cabin. And I was stupid. It was a dumb move. Um, I was hurting. And one of the stupidest things I do did, and I almost, uh, at one point, they strip searched the entire cabin looking for the wallet. And I essentially came through a 
a razor's hair of getting caught and I didn't get caught, which was surprising. Hindsight, I almost wish I had have gotten caught because it probably would have saved me a lot of heartache by facing it. And instead, I got away with it. And I think that was the beginning of a descent into a self-destructive period. Because the wall for me was the person who loved me no longer lived with me. My hero was gone and there was a separation and a loss that I didn't know how to really deal with. And for the most part, all I did was stuff it down. And at the time, overcome, uh, overcoming it was just gutting it out. For probably most of junior high and high school, I just gutted out life, trying to make it work, not really understanding how to make friends. Because I think at the end of the day, I don't really think I liked myself because I took what happened with my dad as I'm not good. It's very common in children of divorce. They think they're the reason their parents get divorced. And I bought into that. And, um, so the, uh, my sister took the exact opposite approach I did. She vomited out to my parents, her anger, her frustration, her guilt. She got it all out. I stuffed it completely in. And I think the only thing that saved me through that entire period is that I had a mom who was very wise. She was uh, a counselor and she understood, but at that time, divorce was sort of a new convention and you, it was tough to talk about. She did her best to love me. I had actually a really good stepfather, but I was lost inside. And the way I would describe my life at that time is that I was a good kid who was deeply hurting inside. So most of my problem was that I was self-sabotaging myself because I had no way of getting out of the pain and anger from my parents' divorce until I got to college. And I remember I lived at USC with my cousin who, and we lived in the Fiji house together on fraternity row and across the streets were all of these fraternities and everybody was having the time of their life. And I considered myself a good kid. Like I was trying to be this good person from pure gutting it out. And I realized I, that has to stop. And I remember exactly where I was when I said, okay, I'm going to stop being the good kid and I'm just going to enjoy my life. And I think it released me from a lot of the pain and it created a thread of how do you deal with the walls? And part of the wall is learning how to communicate pain. If when we hit walls, we've got to learn how to deal with the pain. For most of my childhood and my teens, I didn't know how to deal with the pain. I clustered it all inside and said, I'm going to hide this from everybody. And when you store negative energy in your body, it will always fester to come out. And I, but I, I sort of took a new path. I said, forget all of that. I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to be a college kid. I started drinking. I started experimenting. And I think a lot of those were coping mechanisms, but I never was terribly super destructive. I was experimental, but for the most part, I drank and smoked pot. That was my big thing. And I enjoyed it. I dabbled in other drugs, but pot just made me feel normal. I think that's why a lot of people are attracted to marijuana is because it may, it can help you regulate your own sense of who you are in the moment, at least it may not last forever. So when you come off of it, you lose that, 
but it does give you a sense of reminder that there is something in there worth fighting for. Uh, for the most part in college, I had settled in liking myself again. I had thrown off all the bullshit out and just started enjoying my life. And in college, I really struggled. And once I made this newfound declaration, I started really making connections because I wasn't one of the big things about the wall is it makes you feel inferior. And the wall is this is this recognition of something you cannot overcome. And until you break through it, until you deal with all the junk that is stuffed down inside, you can't overcome that obstacle and you're completely defined by it. That's one of the biggest problems with the wall is that it defines you in a way that is severely limiting. And during this time, um, I ended up falling in love with this girl. She was uh, someone we actually ended up going on a date and had one of the best dates I've ever had and in college at least. And then she came back and a couple of days later and said she didn't want to see me anymore. And I was really shocked because we really hit it off. And I ended up finding out that a friend of mine told her that I was smoking pot and she was a good Christian girl, didn't want that. And I understood it. I was frustrated though, but it began my thought process of saying, okay, how do I begin to really deal with some of this stuff that's happening? And I had this wild idea to go home and it happened to be, it, it, it all kind of fit in terms of coincidence, but I went home on Palm Sunday, went to church and I proceeded to go forward and commit my life to Christ. And this isn't a commit my life to Christ story. It was, but it was a change in attitude. It was a moment in my life when I finally said, okay, I need to surrender and deal with all of this crap. And I went home and I told my parents absolutely everything I ever did in terms of doing drugs, having sex with girls, uh, if I restore, I told him literally everything. And it was, this was probably the most helpful piece of information I ever learned is when you are hurting and you are storing negative energy in your life, one of the most profound things you can do is to confess. And I just let it all out. And it was literally like, all of this negative energy just left my body. And it's one of the most profound experiences I've ever had because I released all of this negative energy. I said, I'm not going to be defined by that. And I can't be defined by it. If you share it, you can no longer have it hidden away, stored in, in, it was stored in me and I knew it was there. So I had to get it out and it was a cleansing. It was really a process of letting it all go and really stopping that process and saying, okay, we need to deal with this. And for 30 days, I had one of the most profound experiences of my life. And I can only liken it to a sense of what I would now call oneness. Um, it was what I would call the unified field. And it was this overwhelming sense of I belonged, I am loved, and I am worth it. And here's the interesting thing that happened after that. And 
when we store negative energy through the experiences we have in our life that create the walls, so the wall is just a reminder of our limit. That wall is created by all of the stored negative energy. And the stored negative energy is you're a piece of shit. It's anything that is directly attacking your sense of dignity. And I was doing that in spades. I was putting myself down. My self-reflection was I was just I was an awful person. I was a good person, but I just didn't have a sense of value. Nobody liked me. I didn't like myself. And I had never really worked through all of the trauma that I experienced from my parents' divorce. And so it made me a very sad person. It's probably the best way to put it. Sad would be the right word. And people don't like to be around sad people. So I didn't have a ton of friends. But now I was going a new direction. And for 30 days, I was an entirely new person. Everyone who interacted with me told me that I was a completely different person. They were like, who are you? It was that profound. It wasn't a little bit. It was everybody that I came in contact with. I had a brightness. I had a feeling. I had a, a courage. And I didn't smoke at all during that time. I, I don't remember if I even drank. I think I was so profoundly affected by it that I was just like energized by everything. I was super creative. I did the very best I ever did in school during those 30 days. Uh, I created some amazing opportunities for myself. And this led me to the second event, okay? My depression in college. So at the end of that period of 30 days, I had a, I made a decision to smoke again, to see what it was like afterwards. And that led me back into smoking again, because it was this awareness of, oh, this isn't going to keep me from this feeling that I have of oneness. It was an absolute incredible experience. And even when I smoked, it didn't go away. And that was hard for me because I didn't know how to reconcile those two things. And from that, the next weekend, we decided, hey, let's have a party and take LSD. And I had taken LSD before, so I was conscious of it. I knew what it could do. But during that time, uh, during that day, we took acid around four o'clock that afternoon. And all I had to do was get through one class at school, and then we could get the party started. And all I remember is sitting in class trying to take a bubble quiz and completely paranoid that my instructor was going to figure out what I that I was on something. I remember that feeling of just, I'm going to get busted here. And I became very paranoid. And then at the last second, the teacher said, you know what, let's throw out this quiz. Everybody uh, jotted out uh, as soon as he said that, and we were off to have a party. And But something happened in that paranoia that kind of captured me that night. It was a start. It was kind of an auspicious start to the evening. Uh, and it kind of set me on edge. But later that night as the party started, some and we were tripping hard during the party. But you're very cognizant when you take LSD. You can interact really easily. And someone came up with the idea of, let's go get a movie. So we all went to Blockbuster and rented Alter States with William Hurt. If you've seen it, if you don't know the movie, William Hurt is a psychopathologist and he's studying sensory deprivation under the influence of psychedelics. And he has all of these incredibly weird experiences of time shifting and shape shifting and all of these weird things that happen cognitively in how he perceived the world. Some may call that the metaverse now or the um, 
multiverse. And uh, we thought it would be a good idea to watch the movie. Very trippy, kind of like the best and worst case scenario of what could happen on a psychedelic influence. And during the movie, there's a scene where William Hurt is having sex with his girlfriend while he's hallucinating. And it's a very strange experience. And then there is a flash of image to give the impression of what he's seeing in his mind. And the idea is of a goat head on an altar. And for some reason, I had this profound sensation overtake me. It was a thought. And that's the hard part of life is we can't control our thoughts. We can only control our reactions to thoughts. But I was absolutely captivated by this thought. What I constructed was this idea that I had committed an unforgivable sin. And if you're aware of the idea in scripture, it's this unique little idea that if you commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you're done. Scholars have really struggled with this verse, and I kind of understand it now, but then I was wrestling with this idea that I had committed it. I, and I, the more that I felt it, the more that I was convincing myself, I actually have. I have committed an unforgivable sin, and what that meant was I was going to hell. Instantly, the vibe changed, and I tried to put it out in my head for the better part of the evening, but it kept festering inside of me. And on psychedelics, the simplest way to send yourself into a tailspin is to not want to think about something because that's what you end up thinking about. What you run from is what you're drawn to. And so for the next, for the rest of the night, I tried to recover. But the more I dwelled on it, the more I thought about it, um, and I couldn't get away from it. And I remember all of the joy that I had experienced for the 30 days completely draining out of my body. That was probably the most interesting part of it, that I had this profound 30-day experience of almost complete joy that I now know is the unified field. I was connected to it. I was deep for some reason. Life just gave me an experience of it that was deeply profound. And I, and I think about this now, every problem you get into is what I've learned over the last eight months is every problem we get into is ultimately constructed by us as a way for us to overcome our own obstacles. It's something that Sean Clayton shared with us in episode three. So if you want to understand that idea, check that out. It's one of the better episodes we've ever done. I had constructed a problem that only I could solve. And I had convinced myself that I couldn't solve it. So I was trapped. I was going to hell. And realistically, for the, for the next 24 hours, I couldn't sleep. I had vicious nightmares. I, was, I knew that if my life ended today, I was going to be separated from God for the rest of my life. Now, in hindsight, I realized what the what my mind was dealing with was the loss of my dad. I had constructed a scenario where God, who was the image of my dad, that he left, that I was abandoned. I was, and I had got myself into the scenario all on my own. I was responsible for taking the psychedelics. I was the one who picked out the movie. And this was a perfect event that literally captivated me. 
and I was completely stuck with absolutely no way of getting out of it. And I now realize I constructed it. Every problem we get into is created by ourselves because we need something that will break us out of that obstacle that we've created. We create a limiting belief. Our body stores that limiting belief, and then it throws it up as a wall and says, overcome this. That's your journey. And that's what I did. I lost my dad and I constructed this idea that I had forgiven, committed an unforgivable sin as a parallel to losing my dad. I was now losing God. And what I realize now is in hindsight, we construct what are called the scene of the crime. And the scene of the crime is this idea that anytime we store negative energy, typically is a judgment against ourselves, like we suck or we're not enough or we're never going to be enough. Our body is going to act in a way that it's going to self-sabotage that idea in some way. It's going to put us in front of an obstacle that we have to break through. Going back to run, fat boy, run. That's what he was doing. His whole life was about running away. And now the moment was constructed in a way that he had to overcome it. And this was his moment. But the problem is that nobody uh, could convince me that I was not going to hell. I had convinced myself and I felt, I literally felt it in my bones. It was some, and that was the problem I couldn't overcome is that thoughts construct chemical responses called feelings. And that feeling feels so awful. And as we then send it back to our brain to understand it, we get paranoid. And that's what happened. I literally got utterly paranoid and completely locked into this idea. And I spent the next three months, most of that summer in a complete depression. So I go from the previous 30 days where I had felt this supreme presence of love. And now it was completely gone. And in hindsight, I now realized I was wrestling with the loss of my dad. Inside, I felt like I was wounded and I had never really dealt with it. And life was now giving me an obstacle to overcome that I had created. So now it was, it was a festering mess inside of my life. I ended up going to rehab, but that didn't work. And for some reason, it just, I wasn't, uh, there was not much that happened other than a moment when I learned I just need, I had a moment that I've shared before of if I can just make one more day, because I was afraid to die. If I died, I was going to go to hell. So I was like, do I try and save my life and make something out of it? That was the question that I had. And every day, well, let's just do one more day. And sitting in rehab, it was it was a day rehab. I would go home at night. But during the day, it was like, if I can just make one more hour. And I remember at the end of the second day going, if I can just make it one more minute, one more minute, one more minute as I watched the clock. And I realized rehab was not the channel that I was going to solve my issue. I had to solve the problem. And this is where I learned that when we store negative energy in our lives, it will eventually come to the surface. I had created a scenario that I had to solve and my scene of the crime was losing my parents to divorce. It had crippled my life. So I created a similar scenario of losing my dad and making it through the summer was about taking one step at a time and focusing on surviving. I made a choice just to keep trying to survive. During the 30 days, I felt like I could have a deep awareness of what love would say. 
because that's the pro that's the thing about love is when you believe you are loved all the noise in your head goes away that's the phenomenon that i learned is love clarifies it clears out all the garbage but then i had this event that completely stripped away so i was lost i was like i'm not loved and this led me to the next big wall this so i it was it was one of those strange events about halfway through the summer i had mentally reached the point where i was like okay trying to survive is a terrible way to live and most of my days consisted of waking up from absolute nightmares because I had nightmares every single night terrorizing me, followed by eight hours of exhausting work, which is probably the best thing because I literally came back exhausted every day working on my dad's remodeling project. He had bought a house just down the street. So I would only drive half a mile to this house, work on it hard, brutalizing work. And I would have eight hour conversations with God going, how could you fucking leave me? It was my dad. I was essentially communicating with my dad. How could you leave me? And, but God, how could you leave me? How could you abandon me? And every night I would go to bed and have the same recurring dream. I was in the back of a limo and it was a stretch limo and the a clown was driving the car down a very windy street at about 50 miles an hour, looking backwards and laughing at me. And I was paralyzed in the back seat with no seatbelt on. It was like, I'm going to die. That's what I really felt like. And I would regularly see this clown in my dreams. It was kind of like the recurring nightmare that I had. And on most nights, I was so terrified to sleep that the way I, the only way I could even remotely fall asleep was to listen to uh, my mom had this favorite pastor who I ended up liking named Charles Stanley, and she would collect his cassette tapes from his sermons. And so I would, the only way I could even remotely fall asleep was to listen to those sermons and slowly kind of pass out because I was exhausted. So one night, about halfway through the summer, I woke up to hear a hissing sound coming out of the speaker. And I got up, walked over to the cassette player and could hear a hissing sound coming out of the speaker. It was this old fashioned unit that was a cassette player, but it had this big speaker box and it sounded like bad static frequency on a radio. But when I put my head up to the speaker, I could hear a voice shouting, fuck you, you asshole. It was clear as day and it said it over and over and over really quickly. Fuck you, asshole. Fuck you, asshole. Fuck you, asshole. And instantly I jumped back and shouted, leave in the name of Jesus. I was smart enough to know what to do and what was happening, but I was completely unprepared for it. And it stopped. But needless to say, I was terrified. And it, I think it was at that point that I realized I can't live this way anymore. Like for basically 45 days, I was in a, a, a state of absolute panic and sheer terror for most of my waking hours. And then in each and every step, I had a choice to survive and take one step forward or end it all. And so I began to consider, is this really worth it? It's way too fucking hard. And so I began to consider what would it look like to end my life? Uh, and this is the interesting thing about life. It's not interested in us giving up. 
So after spending all my days digging ditches in the hot sun at my dad's remodel, I came to the conclusion after that dream or that experience is that I was done. I was like, this needs to end. I can't do this anymore. And today was the day. And I remember the feeling all day long going, God, if you rescue me from this, that'll be a sign. And, but I don't expect anything, uh, but I'm going to end it. And my idea was to drive over to Santa Cruz to uh, watch the sunset. And Santa Cruz is this very windy highway that's two lanes on each side. And it has sheer cliffs at certain ex- at certain sections. And my idea was to go sit and watch the sunset and then come back and drive off a cliff. I had it all planned out. It wasn't the smartest plan, but it was it was all I could really think of. I just wanted it to end. But I didn't really have a good plan. In hindsight, I laugh about it, but I it was a stupid 21-year-old or 23-year-old. I don't remember how old I was trying to figure it out. And as I left my dad's remodel and walked into the house, uh, my mom was cooking dinner and I walked right by her to my room. And she said, hey, there's a letter for you on the bed, on my bed. She had just thrown it on my bed. And I walked right by her because all I was going to do is I was going to get in the shower and dress and leave. So I walked into the room and I stripped down my clothes to jump in the shower. And all of a sudden I see the letter. And it was interesting because it was this blue letter that was, it was from South America. So it had a South American postage stamp on it and it was just simply folded, but it was just a letter that you opened up. And I remember looking at it going, okay, what is this? And I picked up the letter and it was from a friend of mine that I had written to trying to encourage, uh, he was on a missions trip to serve the poor in South America and he had written back and I almost didn't open it. I almost just threw it on the thing and I was going to jump in the shower and forget about it. Uh, but something inside of me said, you should read this letter. And I opened the letter And the first words that my friend said, know that you are a child of God. Now, those words were pivotal for me because at that time, I thought I had been completely cut off from God, that I was not a child of God, that I was not valuable, that God had forgotten about me. And I remember literally falling on the ground, just absolutely bawling my eyes out because I had been talking to God all day long saying, here's your chance. This is it. This is your last chance to save me if you're real. And here was this letter rescuing me to start and to start a new pathway towards facing this wall that I had encountered. And I wish I could say that, um, I wish I could say that the letter immediately changed my life. It took probably another 45 to 60 days for me to really come out of the depression and begin to really see, okay, maybe God is there. Maybe I'm not. And I just took it on faith. I didn't have a clear conclusion to, am I a child of God? But I had enough evidence from the letter that it says it's worth staying alive for. 
And I think that's the beginning of faith. Facing the wall begins with faith. And the wall is simply a recognition of our limiting belief of ourself. And the only way to do, deal with it is to dig it out. The very best way to dig it out is just to vomit it out. Confess as much as humanly possible. Every detail, everything that you're ashamed of, everything that you're guilty of, get it out. Because once it's exposed, once it hits the light of day, it loses its power. It loses its capacity to arrest us and keep us in a state of arrested development. And I began searching out mentors and people that could help me. But these are, uh, and they began to show me that at the core of all human development is our self-image and what we are, how we think of ourselves, And if we get that question wrong. There's one question in this world that you need to answer about yourself. Which side are you on? In the Garden of Eden, there's this unique concept of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I think that's the only question that really matters in life. If you're, if you judge yourself as part of God's family, and part of God and part of the unified field at an energetic level, there's nothing separating any of us. If you're part of that, you're on the good side. Yes, there's evil inside of you. You have a capacity to conjure negative energy. That's what evil is. It's the capacity to conjure negative energy. You can lie, you can cheat, you can steal. All of those are conjuring of negative energy because the outcome of those produces a negative fruit. If you judge yourself as good, you get the question right and your life begins to produce the fruit. This is what essentially Jesus was always trying to get to is just this idea of love yourself. And that's the only thing you really have to do. Jesus, Jesus reduced everything down to love your neighbor as yourself and love your God. When we do that, when we get the question right, our life begins to produce the fruit. And that's what I began to do. I began to surround myself with people who could help me restore my heart. I found a mentor. Um, I found people that I could confide in and work through. I ended up going to counseling. I ended up really listening to my heart and finding people and surrounding myself with masterminds, people that were on the same journey of getting better I ended up creating opportunities for myself to really be around people who wanted to do real heart work. And it was one of the best things I've ever done. And here's the interesting thing. Once you learn, you can break through the wall. You realize you can break through every wall. You're designed to overcome. As a human being created in the image of God, you are designed to overcome your obstacles, but you can't you don't know that you can overcome them until you take the first step to actually try and overcome them. And that's a really pivotal part of overcoming obstacles is believing in yourself, believing that you are worth it, believing that you are capable and you don't know what you're capable of until you try it. So it begins with faith and faith leads to the possibility of hope that it's possible. But discovering that you can 
when I got over those obstacles, when I began to really deal with all of the junk that was inside, I began to realize all of that crap that I had constructed was all a lie. That's all trauma is. Trauma is a lie that something happened to you and you are not worth it. You're not acceptable. Some God doesn't love you and that's all a lie. And so if you're encountering your obstacle today, know that you can overcome it. You just may not know it. You may not have experienced it yet, but the risk and opportunity that you have is to try, to believe in the possibility that you were put here for a purpose to overcome your obstacles. And if I leave you with anything today, I just want to leave you with a possibility that you are worth it. You are an incredible human being. That's what love does. Love restores our self-image with this idea that you, you've got this, you can. And when you do, it starts creating an upward spiral of possibility. The downward spiral is always built on a lie. Anything less than 200 on Hawkins' uh, consciousness scale is all negative energy. You're not defined by it, but you do experience it. That's the problem. It's not a moral question of whether or not you commit evil. It's whether or not it's the consequences of that evil. So when you lie to someone, you break trust. When you steal for someone, you break trust. Every negative energy, evil is the conjuring of negative energy. And when you do that, it breaks trust, which breaks connection between people. And that's the downward spiral that most people experience when they keep buying the lie that you're not worth it. It always begins with one question. I am loved. I am worth it. I have value. And that's the beginning of the upward spiral that gives you the energy to begin engaging courage. Courage is the act of faith. Faith leads us to a possibility, which is hope. And hope leads us to love if we stay on the path. I wish I could say that it was an easy journey. But it wasn't. It took a long time. It took me 15 years of stubborn work to really let go of all my bullshit. In hindsight, I think it's easy. I just made it hard because um, like, I don't regret it. Everything that I've learned has been a journey to help others. That's what I want to do. I want to put out good in the world by helping others, especially through healing. Um, and healing always begins with loving yourself. Like If you're really wondering how do I heal my heart? It begins with love. It does. I had a uh, someone contact me on Instagram saying, where should I begin? And you begin with this idea that you are loved, that God, the unified field, however you want to call it, that oneness exists and it includes you. You are part of good. You're, you experience evil, but you're defined by good. And those are the positive outcomes that you conjure as well. We create good by loving first ourselves, build it up inside, and then it overflows. So you start loving other people. So I hope this helps someone. This was a great experiment and it was actually really hard. It was hard to do this, um, kind of sharing one off and some pivotal stories of my life. I'm not afraid of the stories. But just doing this without Rich has been a good journey. So um, if you listen to this podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please comment, share, 
Um, got some good comments lately that are really helpful. And I'm learning. We're Rich and I are really learning how to do this. This is our 27th episode, and we're really at the beginning. If you have anybody that you would love to see on our podcast, please recommend them. Introduce them to us. Uh, you can always find me. Uh, there's a contact form on our website, livinginthematrix.ai. Please comment, share, review. Let us know what you think, uh, and subscribe. And uh, I just want to leave you with a wonderful word today that you are loved. And I love you. I know that may seem strange to hear someone say that, but it's true. You are worth love. And that's the message I always want to leave you with. So much love, everyone. This has been Living in the Matrix. Uh, Rich, enjoy coming back from New York. Wish you well and uh, wish every one of our audience a wonderful day. Much love, everyone. Thank mm-hmm. you.